Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy, my co-host Steve Walsh. Hello. And we're in the White Bear Pub in Kennington. We're going to be talking this week about Austin Osman Spare, who wasn't born in South London and isn't buried in South London, but spent most of his significant years as uh, an artist and a cultist in South London. We're joined by Tom Oldham. Hello. Tom, uh, man of uh, many interests, and a few years back did a film called The Bones Go Last, which was, I think you described it as a celebration of Spare's life, because, as you say in the instructions to the film, it's very difficult to pin down the facts about him. Yeah. All we can say for sure is he was very good at art. He was. <laughs> I like to think so anyway. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you say, conjecture and, and fables that are generated by him. Some yeah. by himself and some by people around him. Yeah. But, as I say, it's the work that we have now. Not all the work, because some of that, you know, was tragically lost. But there's enough for us to make a case that he's uh, a massively overlooked figure in the history of English art. So you put the film together a few years back. Yeah. What was your inspiration? You know, the celebrations obviously, but what was the actual spur that made you think it needed to be done? So, uh, we made the film because me and this guy, Richard Millington, who, who's now a professional filmmaker, we, we wanted to, we wanted to make a film and uh, Spare was always a character that interested me um, because uh, the occult and esoteric practices have always interested me. Um, he was a figure that featured in the genre comics of some of my favourite authors at the time, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. Um, and I'd lived in I'd lived in South London at that point for about uh, for about six years, and I had I'd started to learn a lot about the area and Spare's place in it. Um, primarily off the back of because I was, I was learning about chaos magic and stuff like that and there was the Speedwell squats down in uh, down near Deptford which was quite close to where I was living um, you know Danny Baker and stuff had lived there and, and like lots of punk scenes had come out of that squat and so I'd become interested in that and sort of like a lot of modern thinking about chaos magic had sort of had sort of been formed there by different people different characters Phil Hine and stuff like that so um, so it was it was something that really interested me and we decided to make a film about Spare on the basis of that really and you went to a lot of the places that Spare was associated with yeah absolutely what sort of places were um, well where we're sitting now where we're sitting now primarily um, the Elephant Castle where, where he had his, um, his his home that was bombed out in the Blitz um, obviously North of the River a bit uh, I'm allowed to talk about North of the River yeah. Yeah. I think you're allowed to talk about the place he was born Yeah, that's relevant Born around yeah. He was born around Smithfield yeah. um, And you, you made an interesting point to me the other day and it was something that occurred to me sort of reading about him Spares a man who is so influenced by the things around him and that starts from an early age doesn't it where he grows yeah. up in the city Absolutely I mean he's a he's a cockney through and through um, and everywhere he goes he's like a sponge he sucks it all up so in and around in and around Smithfield he's got the meat market um, St Sepulchre's the whole place is like steeped in like animal imagery in religious imagery um, and you know he, he just he just thrives on it drinks it up and starts drawing it basically um, and then when he's in South London um, it's the it's the people um, 
he's encountering the people and he's fascinated by them. He's fascinated by character. He's always saying he's fascinated by character. So he, he just starts drawing the people, doing his, his local type images. Um, you know, he really throws himself into into the community as well. He's, he's often portrayed as a sort of um, as a sort of hermit-like figure, this unapproachable. Yeah, but, but actually, uh, you know, that's not the case at all. Um, I think he's just, you know, he's just quite brutal about not doing things he doesn't want to do, interacting with people he doesn't want to interact with. When you see the work and you see particularly a lot of his own sort of portraits are very sort of stern, it's quite fierce. But yeah. then when you see the sort of work doing, you say, portraying the people that he meets on the streets around him, and, you know, every other story about him involves him being in a pub. Yeah. He meets his wife, his future wife's mum in a pub. And she hooks him up with a door. He's like just constantly drawing on his social circles. The, the element, I mean, you, with the one thing to spare is kind of a master at even though he never he never uses this to its full effect in terms of getting uh, as much critical commercial success as he might like is he's the master of like uh, of self publicity and portraying himself a certain way so every time you see whether it's whether it's the self portraits that you know are in his, his early books um, like Nathan of Zoss and, uh, and things you see the portraits he does of himself and you know he, he's trying to project a character. He's trying to project an air of mystery. He's trying to make himself seem like a seem like a, an interesting character. Uh, well, he's fascinated by Blake, isn't he? And he, he is. Yeah. He draws himself. As you There's a lot of parallels in their lives. There's yeah, a lot of parallels yeah. in their lives. I was thinking. I was thinking about this actually on the way because one of the things that I really enjoyed doing the research about today. Because I should point out that I'm more. I'm more just a fan. I'm not a. I'm not a dying world expert. I point everyone towards the Philip Baker biography as the definitive article in terms of information about spare. Um, but like, what I was reading the Ackroyd Blake biography the other day, and on my way into work. I just read the bit about uh, Blake and, and, and the, the Royal Academy and stuff like that. And I was on my way to work, and I was, I was like, I've just been reading on the train about William Blake walking down this street, <laughs> and that was one of the thrilling things about um, because I love South London so much. To add this this thread of uh, of everywhere I went in South London all the pubs that I was drinking because he was drinking in the West End or in South London which is where Spare drank yeah. and so everywhere I go and I, I, it's sort of something I'd forgotten before you asked me to do this because I was on the bus coming up by Camberwell and in my mind I just had like Kenneth and Steffi Grant who were the, the, the two sort of Camberwell students who befriended Spare near the end of his life um, and helped him develop a lot of a lot of magical ideas or he helped them develop a lot of magical ideas and esoteric thinking and I was just, just going past Camberwell and I was just again I had that sort of thrill of like oh you know Spare used to be here Spare yeah, 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 you know. um, so you know it's, it's exciting well, reading about him for the show, I'm sure yourself, Jack, you, came, you stumbled across loads of locations that you're aware of. But you have no idea the significance of this person's life. Yeah, I mean, if we'd have been able to do uh, a tour, I mean, you could go on for miles, couldn't you? Yeah. Starting, let's say, the borough. Um, yeah, all the way to Brixton. Why do you wear a there's, a there's a great thing online by, um, by a guy called Jamie Grant called Spare Places Parts 1 and 2 and um, he, he actually helped us very early on in the film he's a I think he is a uh, a Harry Krishna and so we had to arrange to meet him and he has to spend a certain amount of time in Temple uh, and after about a month he'd finished his time in Temple so he came out to meet us for uh, for an ale and um, we, we, we sat with him and he he's got three great spare videos online they're, they're all quite wonky but obviously he's, he's also quite tied to uh, to, to what's the word 
Uh, yeah, the, 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 the psychogeographical element is big in, in the videos that he's made, but also sort of like squatting culture, um, uh, radical protest. Um, yeah, I've seen a video he talks about yeah. it. He does, it, in his sort of exploration of the psychogeographical spares life, when he talks about his time in Brixton, he also ties in a lot of squats and art collectives and yeah. outlines where they were when they opened. Also, more importantly, when the council closed them, yeah. and then how that ties into modern gentrification of Brixton. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It was the council pretty much in the 90s setting up for the middle class to move in. Yeah, um, and they're, they're great resources, and, and especially to start to examine the, the sort of psychogeographical element of, of, of that, of, of travelling around South London and being like. Yeah. There's also him nailing exactly what we're talking about when we talk about. Absolutely, yes. I, mean, I, I got confused doing my research, you know, there's a lot of talk about spare living above the wharves on the wharf road, 56A wharf road. And I was trying to work out what it was, and I was like, I, just, I, I thought the wharves became the Argos on the wharf road, and it did. Yeah, but that's not 56A. No, it's not, is it? It's actually... Uh, where, and, and then I, I was reading about wharves on the wharf road, and... <laughs> on on the there's a Woolworths history as in Woolworths the store history website which yeah. is great um, and it had Woolworths now and then <laughs> <laughs> and it had uh, uh, it talks a bit about uh, the Woolworths on Newington Bucks getting bombed in 1941 and I was like well, Austin, Austin Spears Woolworths got bombed in 1941 but the one on the Wharf Road that we think of as the one on the Wharf Road uh, was untouched and the, didn't survive until 1941 that, that area of Woolworth Road because uh, I've seen post pictures, it was, it was totally flattened. There was well, nothing there. What's there now? It's, and I, I was like working out on uh, like Google Street View and trying to work. I was like following along, and like I, I go through the elephant on way to work. So I was like going along on the bus going. So that's two fifty. That's three oh three. Then where is and it gets to like eighty two. Because I was also looking for. 86 Wharf Road, which is the hostel that Spare stays in when his flat gets bombed. Yeah, that's right. But that, and that's the hotel now. It's yeah. Castle Hotel. You wouldn't stay there. It just, it's, it's a, it looks, there's a sign outside, but it just looks very much abandoned. But um, it's 56 A Wharf Road would be where the uh, Strata and Draper houses are. So it was obviously flattened, and then in the 60s, yeah. we developed for some housing, and then later on for newer housing. It's, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, Street View. Street View was uh, invaluable when we were making the film. It's, a, it's <laughs> such a resource, isn't it? We, uh, Richard Millington, who I made the film with, managed to find Spare's grave on the basis of using, uh, using the, the Jamie Grant film. Because uh, at the end of it, in one of his films, they do, uh, they do an interview with Spare via uh, various forms of mediumship and, uh, you know, um, and uh, other sort of uh, manses. And uh, at the end, they go, and Rich watched the film, and using the clues from the film, went to different grave sites, graveyards, on Google Maps, and worked out which graveyard it was. Um, when, when, just you know, triangulation. Yeah, just triangulation. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny because if you, we, when we first started making it, we asked various sort of cultists, um, uh, people who are big in, in, in that sort of world and the esoteric scene, um, you know, where, where's Spare buried? And they, they were all like, oh, we know, we know, but we, we can't say, we, we can't say, we know, <laughs> we can't say. And then when, um, and, and, so, and so we were like, oh, 
got these. Must be, you know, must be quite well. So Rich just worked it out in an afternoon, just yeah, yeah, yeah. messing around on that. Then when we met Phil Baker, uh, we, we said this to him. He goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I know people are like that. But I mean, I, I just looked it up. It's um, it's in a, it, it's in any like who's who book from the time, yeah, and, yeah. and you can just look it up very, it's, very it's easily. In like it's Ilford, yeah. Yeah, he's buried next to his father, isn't he? He has no connection to the area. He's still, still, and still there. Well, but now he does because now he's a lot of his relatives that are still alive live in the Ilford area. Um, so I, I don't know if I don't know if perhaps there, there there was a connection for the rest of the family later in life. So perhaps his perhaps his dad was parents buried there because or his, his parents moved out there or his siblings moved out there and then they buried they buried the, the mum and dad there. So let's go back to his early life. He grows up as we said in the city, the field around him, but then. Age seven, moves to Kennington Park Gardens, yeah. and begins his South London adventure. Yeah. It's at this point that he's supposed to have met the Witch Patterson. The Witch Patterson. Yeah. Um, this is another. This falls into the to what we were talking about earlier about. Uh, Spare's brilliant ability to, to sort of mark himself. It's, it, it also comes from a long tradition within the occult of um, giving legitimacy to views by tying them to a much older source. So you'll have lots of lots of sort of uh, magical magical groups and covens and uh, and societies, secret societies. Uh, in London and Paris, that uh, from the sort of 18th century, that, that can that can trace their lineage back to say the witches of Salem or an old German witch. Templars, Rosicrucians, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just like who, who don't exist. Ancient tradition don't exist, and there's there's an element to Patterson that this is this is the the role that she plays because uh, I talk about Kenneth and Steffi Grant again um, because they. Through their, they're, they're quite important figures in terms of like chaos magic and stuff like that, and they and spare is very much their um, is very much their sort of like uh, figure figurehead, and um, I don't think that for example they would do anything to dispel any uh, rumours about Mr. Patterson because it gives it gives this element of, uh, of validity and. Uh, well, Grant also goes on to claim later that when when. Um, when Spare's living in Stockwell or living in Brixton, he's attending rituals with the Cult of Ku, a Chinese yeah. occult sect that worship a, a serpent goddess in Stockwell. Yeah. Apparently. Is there any other evidence for that? I, mean, <laughs> yes. uh, I hope so. Uh, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't put it past him, but, um, but Patterson, I think there are, there are elements, like, like with all these things, there are elements of truth to it. I think there's, there's obviously a culture uh, within working class uh, London. Uh, then myself, London, of you know, reading fortunes in the tea leaves. Um, certainly, it was stuff that like my nan, um, living in South London, and, uh, and she used to read tea leaves. Uh, no, she didn't, but she was aware of the practice sort of thing. Right, right. Um, would she get her tea leaves read? I, I believe she would have done. Yes. Um, but um, but you know, so so there's there's probably like old ladies knocking around who. Uh, who you know have, have the gift of prophecy or what have you, but also um, again in the Phil Baker book, um, uh, Phil found uh, a Mrs. Patterson who uh, lived to, to be 102, I think, and um, he supposes that Spare could possibly have invented her and gotten the name from her from from the announcement in the paper that she'd reached 100. Um, so he just finds an elderly woman. Yeah. 
claims that she took in witchcraft, and it's got everything that he needs in terms of it's vague enough that no yeah. one can check. Potentially, I mean, there's also the, 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 there are members of Spare's family who who do talk about um, you know older uh, an, an old lady figure that factored in their lives as either a childminder um, who was who was a bit skewed, but I, I think uh, you know I, I think you can you can sort of it wouldn't be a stretch to say that Spare's probably confabulated uh, different elements of his life uh, in order to have a good story to tell the papers. Um, what was interesting as well with, with that story is there's, uh, there's, there's there's a sort of sexual element to it as well that she supposedly initiated could him. initiated him <laughs> into many um, and, you know and, and could could appear like a sultry young lady. These are in some accounts, you know. And, and Lord knows it does sound like the sort of story of a 14 year old boy would make up yeah. <laughs> so, so you know yeah, um, I, was, I was like taught magic with this old woman but when she was teaching me sex she turned me into a very young girl yeah. <laughs> really Oscar wasn't saying yes that's and exactly he, he, he what did draw, he, you know he, he drew a lot of um, old naked ladies as well uh, in his time <laughs> but I, I think like with, like with virtually everything we're going to touch upon some of it's true yeah. just depends how much you want to some of it is true but who knows how much? The thing we can always verify is his ability as an artist, and it's while yeah. in South London that this really starts to flourish. Uh, age 12, he starts taking lessons at the Lambeth School of Art. That's right, yeah. And is revealed as uh, a gifted artist almost yeah. immediately, so that his tutors seem to realise they've got someone special. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he, he very quickly shows proficiency for line work and, and being a draftsman. Um, and he's. You know, he's um, he's being influenced by by the art that surrounds him as well. Um, you know, there are the, the art that he's seeing in in books. So, you know, he's reading a lot of Homer and, and, and things like that. Um, and and, and also Blake that again, and Blake uh, and Blake and, his, and Blake's art and and indeed all of the religious art that he's being surrounded by and the and the level of um, ritual. That, that comes with that because you know he's, he's attending religious schools, um, so all of that's being fed in even as a even as a teenager. And that early promise goes on to fruition in 1904 when he exhibits pieces at the summer exhibition of the Royal Academy. Yeah. Um, which some say is the youngest person to have done it. It's not. There, were, there, there have been younger people before Spare. But again, it just falls into Thought to be, wasn't it? Thought to be, yeah. yeah. But he was certainly the youngest that year, and it was a phenomenon, wasn't it? It yeah, was absolutely. picked up on by the press, and it turns into totally this it was, massive... Totally it was. And I think, I think when it gets picked up on by the press, Spare, Spare has a whole thing quite early on. And he, he often talks about it in his later life, that they're these... That they're effectively, they were vultures like, rooting through his things. But... Not only does he manage to court them exceptionally well, and the quotes he gives them—you know—he tells them he's starting his own religion and that he's not a Christian. <laughs> he tells them, he tells them, he tells them all sorts of things, and you know, and they in turn sort of mythologise him because they want to—they want to make him out to be this like pauper boy who's done good. There's this brilliant uh, magazine. It's called Chum Magazine. And it's for—it's like for teenage boys, right, yeah. and the whole thing is they want to—they want to present all these like boy done good stories, and they go to town. On him sort of saying you know he's this pauper boy who's found out that now every artist in the land says oh to be Austin Osmond Spare and all this and I think that Spare as well as having like a negative reaction to all this um, because of elements that he can't control perhaps he also I think at this point realises the power of the press that later on in life he'll go do you know what I'm going to court this to, 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 to good effect um, 
but yeah, and and you know, he gets a lot of attention. He gets a lot of attention from from other artists, from, from multiple artists at the time. Yeah, singer, um, singer, uh, Watts. Um, you know, they they all sort of uh, they all sort of offer him encouragement. So yeah, but of course, not his first gallery show. That was in May 1904. Yeah, and he's in uh, Newington Library on the Wharf Road. Absolutely. That's where he makes his uh, grand debut. His grand debut, yeah. And setting uh, you know, a pattern early on again of him showing his work in unusual places. Yes, yeah, very much so. But I mean, uh, correct me if I'm, I, I, this, I might well be very wrong here, it's especially, especially unusual because I think public libraries are, are relatively new, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know... That, that in of itself yes. is, uh, you know, it, it's unusual that, that a library even exists at that point. Did you go to the uh, exhibition at the Cunion Museum a few years ago? We did. I mean, the film was made for, for that, for the book that came with that. Um, and uh, I thought... I thought that was an alarmingly good exhibition. Uh, it was. I thought it was a bit of a shame because it was. I thought it was badly curated in one sense. In that, in, one of the things that defines Spare's work is the, the breadth of style and uh, the, the, the different the different aesthetics that he applies over the course of his career. And you had a lot of stuff sort of like bundled together, like three or four pictures tall going up. You know, you couldn't get a good view of some of it. But it was an amazing achievement. It was, it was done by Stephen Poaching, um, uh, who also wrote the accompanying book. Absolutely great exhibition with stuff that was donated from. Uh, like he, Stephen Poaching was out. Couldn't possibly tell you who's donated it. But like, uh, it, it, uh, I imagine the uh, good quantity of it was Jimmy Page um, uh, being, the, being the collector of, uh, of a cult art that he is, um, and, and other sort of uh, you know famous collectors. Um, that, that was great, an amazing, a, a really good homecoming, solid. Spare's response to fame is to produce his first book, Earth Inferno. Earth Inferno, which yeah. Which takes the premise that Earth is hell. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, inhabited by demons. Yeah. Which is quite a response to fame, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he's also, I mean, is he at the Royal Academy at that point? <laughs> Royal College, Royal, Royal College, yeah. Royal College, yeah, he, yeah that's nothing. He signs up to the Royal College. Of yeah, Art. and I mean, he's not having a good time there. No, um, he doesn't. He doesn't enjoy it at all. And they want him to do shading and cross-hatching. You can't understand why. Yeah, <laughs> um, so it doesn't play to his strengths. No. And I think generally a lot of uh, a lot of the students that are with him. Uh, Sort of negative about their experience there at that time, um, and he's he's sort of involved in the he's vague, on the periphery involved in the uh, the, the women's lib movement. Uh, yeah, sort he of uh, uh, Pankhurst. Yeah, he does. Sylvia Pankhurst. And and indeed, his sister becomes friends with Sylvia Pankhurst as well. And they and he does illustrations for these books. And he's he's like he's bowling around the college with his hair wild, wearing sashes. Uh, and he's got he's got a little badges on and stuff like that. And he's um, you know probably a bit of a hipster. <laughs> um, and he's he's known as he's definitely he's known got a as being uh, he's known as being a bit of a tearaway and bad news. And when 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 he puts out uh, Earth Inferno, a lot of Pankhurst's uh, female friends um, instead of buying them directly from Spare. Ask if Pankhurst acquired a copy of it because they couldn't approach. Uh, um, but but I mean, Earth Inferno. I've got to say, I'm not a fan of Spare's writing, 
Um, I like some of the ideas, but it is it is very it's very verbose. Yeah. I think it um, from what I've, I I think it takes its cues very heavily from other writers. Um, and Blake. I don't yeah Blake again. And I don't necessarily think that Spare has a natural attitude for it. I think I also I also think that he's got some great ideas that that come out of a great volume. Um, and. Uh, so I, I have I, you know I whilst I have read Earth Inferno, um, I couldn't read it again. Um, so my, <laughs> my, my my understanding is is of it is limited. But um, yeah, the, the general conceit is uh, Earth is Earth is hell, uh, and it's probably it's probably born out of the prevailing winds of society at the time being quite a you know quite a negative and dour one. His time at the Royal College and his experience of, of fame and, and, and the press. So he leaves the Royal College without any qualifications. Yeah, he does. Has a, a shortish and troubled marriage. He does. Where he's well, he's in Golden's, Golden's Green. Yeah, and that's the thing, he's sort of moving around, isn't he? Obviously, there's going to be a spiritual Moves back to Kenyon for a bit, moves up to Bloomsbury for a bit. He's very much all over the place. It's a very disruptive time in his life. He's not produced a great deal as well because of the disruption. Yeah. Ends up back in the borough, though. Yeah, he does. Tabard Street, where uh, my cousins lived. Right, <laughs> so I knew it well. T- Tabard Square's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I heard Tabard Street, and then um, looking at spare places, I'm like, yeah, that's their flats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, uh, remind me the name of the, uh, what's it called when he's down in Borough? Beckett House. Uh, Beckett House, that's yeah. right, yeah. And that's that's also, I mean, this is another thing, that's opposite, that's very close to pubs that my great-great-grandparents used to run. Um, that's right, your family's... Um, yeah, you used to run pubs in South London. Yeah. So that was another thing for me that was quite exciting, Including, the idea Including uh, the King's, uh, the old King's Head. In, uh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was quite exciting to me as well, because I was sort of like, I was, I was desperately hoping that their times would have overlapped, and, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I don't think they did, sadly. And then moves up to Waterloo... And in Kennington yeah. again, but in 1936 moves to the Warfront, and that yeah. becomes a very important point in his life and career. Yeah, he starts working on the local portraits that yeah. become an important feature of his work, drawing people he runs into in pubs and sees on the character. It's all about and character. It's an interesting thing. It's the pattern of. You know, he, he starts off at a young age at the centre of the art establishment, at the Royal Academy. Yeah. You know, you can't get, and then at the Royal College, and like bombs out of both those places. He's, he's and you know, rather than making any work doing portraits of middle class people, which is how you're going to make money as an artist in this, yeah. time, he wants to, to paint costermongers and matchwomen. Yeah, I mean, he actively, I mean, he actively avoids um, doing portraits of middle class people. He, there's a when when he starts doing the pub shows and stuff in South London. He gets all this interest, and people start saying to him, oh, "Will you come and you come and you know do do paintings with me?" Because there's also this weird, bizarre thing about Spare because he's slightly unknown. People seem to disassociate him from just like what was going on at the time in the world. And when when in fact you know the people that came to, to his shows around here are, were like active. You know, you, you'd recognise some of the names, and the, 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 there were people who were who were aware of him, and they you know they collected Alistair Crowley's art and stuff like that, and all these people tried to get sittings with him. Um, but for the same, probably really for the same reason he turned down the Hitler. I mean, he just, he just a he wasn't comfortable getting his gear together and going around somebody else's house and painting them. It just wasn't something that he was comfortable doing. Um, and also he wasn't interested in it 
Yeah, the Hitler commission yeah, is fascinating. Tell isn't us it? more about that. Well, it did happen. Hitler saw Hitler saw some spares work from someone who worked at the German embassy, and they did put a request in. Um, but like with every, like with all these sorts of stories, spare sort of uh, spare sort of uh, you know uh, hyperbolizes and aggrandizes it. Um, he he turns it down. Probably because he can't be asked. Um, <laughs> basically, not allegories. Yeah, I've seen uh, a painting and read a version where what he ends up sending to Hitler is: Have you seen uh, Spare as Hitler or self? Sorry, self as Hitler. Have you got a picture of it there? Yeah, Hitler selfie. He, he yeah, essentially he draws a self-portrait of Hitler's moustache and sends right. it to Hitler with a note and the note is remarkable we talked earlier about yeah. how he's not a gifted writer and it's very overblown and florid but this but note this is, yeah. is just from, it's so on the notes um, he, so he says to Hitler this is his reason rather than just say no he says no, to Hitler, says to Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only from negations can I wholesomely conceive you for I know of no courage sufficient to stomach your aspirations and ultimates if you are the superman let me be forever animal yeah, which which it's remarkable, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, it speaks and it, you know it speaks to it speaks to a lot of his writing and his ideas about Kier and Zoss. Um, but I would I would say in the kindest possible way, as much as I'd love that to be true, to me that that reeks of uh, of post the fact sort of spare creating this. Um, this, this, you know, perfect note to Hitler. Because the thing is, the portrait that you see that has it on, he produced in 1946, and he claims it's a, it's a <laughs> yeah, reproduction. So he claims a reproduction of what he yeah. sent Hitler, but was destroyed in the studio in 1941. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you'll get this. <laughs> um, so you know, uh, it, he, he, he certainly all the local papers and stuff love him for it, and he tells the story. You know. Um, again and again to, to well in 1938 as well he claims that while he turned down the commission he, did he then did a, did a portrait that he's using in um, anti-magical sorry magical anti-Hitler um, so basically he wins the war for us that's the good news <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> similarly in 36 we get Dali coming to London to do yeah, his first does. exhibition and that gives a bit more interest in spare um He's uh, out of nowhere crowned the father of English surrealism. Yeah, which he, which he himself doesn't. You know, he he tries to bat that crown away occasionally. He he. Um, in fact, in the for his first for his first, the the exhibition catalogue, I think it's for his first pub show, which is uh, Temple Bar. Yeah. So, is it Temple Bar War Fruit? Yeah. yeah. So the the catalogue for that, he I think he talks about uh, Dali or maybe it's the one for this show, I can't remember which one. But he, he talks about surrealism, he sort of says, Look, I had a lot of the same ideas, um, but I'm not you know I'm not the father of surrealism. But he's he's quite happy to sort of court the idea that he had all these ideas. I think well what was uh, someone someone coined the term side realism for uh <laughs> I, I went to when we were making the film there was uh, sort of Jungian twitch of the web there was a um, 
uh, a, a surrealist exhibition on uh, at the Tate, I think. And uh, walking around it, I was struck by some of the similarities in terms of in terms of like, and I was not not still at that moment not being fully aware of all the connections that existed. I was I was quite sort of like, look at this, these guys are just ripping some hair. Oh God, look at that, look at that, look at that. Um, but you know. Uh, Again, those those ideas come from very different places. Um, you know, spares spare is always breathing this sort of uh, this sort of Edwardian Gothic miasma in his work. It's always there. There's there's I don't there's always a sort of adoration and reverence for pomp and the old and even ceremony to a point. Uh, even though a lot of his sort of occult thinking at times rejects that kind of thinking, whereas surrealism. Is, you know, has a more sharp, modern feel to it at its time. Uh, Spare, Spare's always either too in tune with his times, or a little bit behind <laughs> his times, or, or he's never quite—he's never quite right for what the establishment wants. He's never quite right for what the art scene wants. Whereas, you know, movements like surrealism, you know, have their time and then survive post it. And I think that's one of the reasons why Spare was sort of. You know, floated into obscurity a little bit. He, he also he didn't like Dali, I don't think. No, um, he, he bangs on about it to Kenneth and Steffi Graham, and that's another another figure that they disagree on. And it's similar with uh, Crowley, isn't it? Where uh, he meets Crowley, and Crowley's besotted uh, him pretty much. Yeah. But uh, Spare has no interest in his magical workings, the hierarchical nature of the society he proposes. He's Crowley was after him, wasn't he? You know, sexually. Yes, he he was he was. I mean, Crowley's written as much, um, and there are people who there are people who are who exist. That I know, I know, for example, um, uh, certain sort of figures in, in the occult uh, sort of um, uh, scene. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, in in around London, would definitely tell you that uh, Spare and Crowley were lovers. Um, I don't think there's any evidence for that at all. Um, you know, the evidence that is cited is communing with spare uh, via mediumship, uh, medium, mediuming. Um, it's the and, worst kind of evidence. Yeah, and, and it won't hold up in court. Yeah, <laughs> spare, spare told me he had a romantic entanglement with, with Alistair Crowley. Um, whereas all the all the sort of written evidence shows that they, you know, that they had a rift. Um, there's also like a story that does the rounds. Again, I don't know how how true it is, but that. The spare makes uh, the spare makes all these chocolate fondants out of dog shit, and then takes them around Crowley's house and feeds them to him. And Crowley uh, Crowley eats them, and I can't remember. It's, it's proper like folk tale the way it goes. I can't quite remember whether Crowley knows their dog shit from the star or whether the spare goes, "Maha, you're eating dog shit." And Crowley goes, goes, "I know, it's delicious," and then, and then carries on eating it. But there, there's some sort of element where where spare gets spare gets a laugh because he makes Crowley eat dog shit, and Crowley gets the last laugh because he knew it was dog shit all along. Um, but uh, again, that smacks of uh, post post the event. As you say, he sort of he rejects the surrealist crown. There's a great newspaper headline uh, with a, a, an article about him that says, uh, "The father of surrealism," and he's a cockney. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a cockney. So, as you say, he courts the newspapers and goes as far as to make a series of surrealist racing forecast cards, which he sells uh, from his flat. Uh, and does home exhibitions in 1936, 1937, 1938, off of the back of this sort of new wave yeah. of interest. And they go quite well for him. But it is him still sort of moving out of 
gallery circle from the establishment, sort of try, trying to form yeah. his own path. And that's there is that, and I, um, there, there is that element to it, and I definitely don't want to take that away from from Spare, like hundred percent. Because um, he, you know, again in the in the catalogues, he writes uh, that, that displaying in uh, displaying in, in gallery spaces is um, is democratic and, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, but there's a again there's this sort of split when talking about Spare, where some people say everything that he did was like his choice, and it was exact. He lived his life exactly how he wanted to. And then there's there's other people who go, not really, no, like. Whilst I think uh, he felt very comfortable doing pub shows and uh, painting local types and, uh, and in his surroundings, in his working class surroundings, surrounded by his cats, um, I think he, he did. He loved to have been accepted by the art establishment. There's the there's the the, the, the famous famous letter. I think I think it's to, to Ada Payne where he gets he, he might get the opportunity to display in the West End again. And uh, the, the the quote in it is no more bloody pubs for me. <laughs> and you know there's there there is that element. I, I think he does enjoy it and he does pioneer it and he does make a good go of it and he enjoys it. I also think still and I think that's symptomatic in his relationship with Kenneth and Steffi Grant as well some you know these are two people who are sort of adoring him um, venerating him and lionising him and I think um, I think there's an element to it where he's a bit sort of like I was told when I was 12 that I was going to be like top dog uh, they were saying you know they were making up lies about they were saying that I was saying that I would be president of the Royal Academy yeah which I didn't which I never said yeah. but that's what they thought that I should be thinking and now I am living in a basement or my house has been totally bombed out and you know well that's it he's bombed out in 1941 spends a lot of time in the Warth Road and Spitalfields and then moves into Wind Road into Ada Payne's basement yeah doesn't have a bed has two chairs facing each other that he just lies on and sleeps on sometimes (laughs) yeah (laughs) sometimes yeah and as you say, surrounded by cats. Yeah. So this is in, he's in Brixton, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is uh, just on Brixton Road. Isn't it? Yeah. And Ada Payne's doing him a favour. There's a lot of. Um, uh, again, I, I feel a bit. Because it's been so long since I've, I've really thought about all this stuff hard. But I think there's lots of people like uh, speculate about whether they had a relationship going on, whether they were an old flame. And I think, I think someone told me that probably not, because Ada Payne was like, almost certainly a lesbian. I can't remember. I can't remember what the nature of their relationship is, but whatever it is, they're, they're, they're good friends and she wants to look after him. Um, but uh, a little bit of a musical <laughs> interlude here. We'll, uh... The thing about <laughs> musical interlude is he loves New Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Does the pub shows, you say, Temple Bar in the Wharf Road in 49, uh, the Mansion House Tavern in Kennington in 1952, yep. and here in the White Bear. In and here in the White Bear, yeah. Yeah, he does. Um, and uh, his, his, his friend, his, uh, his friend Letchworth lends him some money, and he actually buys the house above that Ada Payne's living in, and she ends up paying him rent. But the house is totally dilapidated, like it's totally dilapidated. So he's living there. But it is again this relationship with Kenneth and Steffi Grant that's really given him a second wind, and he's going around for all the pubs around there and the, and the pubs in the West End with them. And he's still he's still an active man. He's not like he's not also he's not a bizarre weird recluse. He's still he's still got mates in all the pubs, and he's still occasionally before in his last period he adopts this sort of stoic uh, character, uh, and he's got a magical name for it and all this sort of thing. But even just before that, in his later years, you know, he's still chasing girls and stuff like that. He's not um, you know he's he, he's not this sort of like weird hermit. 
even though he is like terribly looking after himself, he's just drinking milk and booze and eating canned food. Um, you know, Lord knows where these cats are pissing and shit. Do you know what I mean? It's it, he's not he's not. You see it in photos of him though. He's not taking he care does, of himself. He does. He's He looks a bit. Yeah. Uh, that's where the title of the film came from. The bones go last because. I think there's a story about when there any alternatives that was like just milk yeah just milk yeah <laughs> forever animal isn't it? forever animal forever yeah, animal that has been the other work it's like a wasp album or something <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, I think there's a there's a story about when Stephanie Grant first goes to see him she's quite shocked when she sees him because she's she's only seen the, 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 the portraits of him as a younger man and she thinks he's going to be like this sort of Greek Adonis yeah. sort of thing dashing dashing and you know he's, 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 quite, he's quite a slight quite a slight man you know the bones go last um, but um, but yeah he's so, so so that's happening he really gets a sense that things are looking up for him because he's got these two exciting young like hip cats who are building this sort of religion around him and this sort of magical practice around him and he is he's you know, he's retaught himself how to draw after the war because when his place gets bombed out, he gets this sort of psycho, possibly psychosomatic sort of inability to control his hands and has to sort of reload to draw. So he really feels like he's got a window. Yeah, I read again. somewhere that he lost feeling in his right right arm. Yeah. So he teaches himself to draw with his left arm. And the second that, and I believe again, this is this could be apocryphal, but the second that he starts to be able to draw with his other hand, he gets the use back in his other hand. Yeah, that's it. Um, and you know, psychosomatic illness is a, is another theme in. Spare's life. And his memory gets affected as well, doesn't it? By the sort of post-traumatic stress, you Yeah, it does. Which, which I imagine for a, which, you know, again, not to belittle the suffering that, yeah, <laughs> not, not, not to belittle the suffering that he went through during that stressful time at all. Um, but I imagine it's also relatively convenient for a man who relies on fantasy and uh, misdirection in the press. You're asking about the witch patterns at that point, and he's like, yeah, let yeah. me tell you about it. Let me tell you about that. What, what, what a lady. Witch yeah. patterns. Um, <laughs> um, so he's, so at this point, he's, he's, he's loving it. He's doing all these shows around here. And he's, you know, he's, he's he's getting a bit of money here and there. He's got a few sort of patron friends, and uh, he's getting his drinks bought for him. His, his Nuki Blacks bought for him. I'm not entirely sure they are, uh, but that's all he drinks. So Jack, you saw recently in Brixton, and we talked about doing this episode, didn't we? Yeah, it's been on the calendar for a long time. So obviously, we've uh, seen Tom's documentary, um, and. I've not really looked much into his work and realised how talented and important of a figure he was. And then one day on Brixton Road, I saw on the side of a building um, a quote on the wall, Great thoughts are against all doctrines of conformity. Austin Osmond's bear with his dates of uh, birth and death. Yeah, on the, up on the side of a building, really sort of out of place, to be honest. So I took a photo of it and sent it to Tom. And I was, <laughs> I loved it. But, but you know, talking to you today, it's Wim Road, where you know he lives in the basement and so he's obviously buys it's obviously out. A so a point it's, to it. yeah, it's a tribute to, to spare. Yeah, which but is no idea who's done it. I mean, it's yeah. a, but it's a lovely thing, isn't it? You know, a man whose life is shrouded in so much mystery. I don't want to find out who did it. I yeah, just like no, the fact that someone's done it, and let's just leave it there. You know? yeah. What is nice, though, I suppose, is that you know one word that keeps cropping up when you look into his life, or you know uh, how he's viewed now, is overlooked. You know, yeah. He's not really given the credit, uh, not really given the credit or the place in our history that he deserves, maybe. But to have that kind of monument, absolutely, you know, because they're not throwing statues off of people, are they, no. in Brixton? 
No, apart from Henry Tate, obviously. Well, that's another thing. But it also taps in nicely to Brixton's very particular sort of art history in that there's a great tradition of muralism, isn't there? So, you know, that's the perfect tribute for, you know, a Brixton resident. Here, here. So if you want to watch Tom's documentary, Tom and Richard's documentary, uh, if you go to Vimeo, vimeo vimeo.com, and just type in the bones go last and it will pop up it's in two parts and you'll you'll love it tremendous you can see his work in it you know if you don't if because there'd be a lot of people listening who probably never heard of him no I'd say definitely look at the Phil Baker biography and uh, watch the well, watch the you know they're quite a shaky cam the, the Jamie Grant things on YouTube yeah I think you know, spare, well Spare Places is on Vimeo as well oh is it yeah okay. yeah so just go to Vimeo isn't it? you'll find some stuff on uh, we'll put it uh, we'll embed it oh we can you embed Vimeo yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah, we'll embed it on com as well, hopefully in a post, um, and also maybe link Steve to the Alan Moore in the Cuban Museum in a taxi as well, talking about spare. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can find us on Twitter at SLHC, uh, Instagram also. Tom, give your links out because you've got loads now. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the I own a main one, Breakdown Press. I run a, a, a comics and art book publishing thing uh, that will just be just go uh, breakdownpress.com. Yeah, great stuff on there, Steve, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Great stuff. What should they buy, Steve? If they buy one thing and break down, what should they get? My favourites are probably Joe Kessler's Window Panes, which are two different books. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, window window like, Pane 1 and 2. Window <laughs> Pane 1 and 2. You say Window Panes, just what? Have you got Window Panes? You've got both of them, yeah. There's two. <laughs> um, but also, uh, coming up soon, you've got the second part of Treasure Island, Brother Williamson. Yeah, which looks it's great. Yeah. yeah.